Hello and welcome to DesignCast, a podcast where I interview a wide range of excellent guests in design and STEAM education to get their unique perspectives. My name is Jason Regan and I use my 20 plus years of experience as a design educator to dig deep into complex issues. This podcast has one simple mission, to create a community of people around the world that are interested in design and STEAM education. Each episode, I chat with guests from all corners of the design world, from classroom teachers to authors and even to educational consultants. We discuss a wide range of topics that we feel are relevant today. I do want to ask you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, share, or download from your favorite podcasting app. This helps the podcast get discovered by listeners that might not find it otherwise. Also, it helps me to continually define the direction of future guests and episodes. Feel free to drop by my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, to leave me a comment or to sign up to be considered as a future guest on future episodes. Also, don't forget to stop by Anchor and leave me a voice clip that could even end up in an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. So let's get to it. On this episode of DesignCast, I had the amazing opportunity to chat with Dr. Saba Kidwai. Saba believes that cultures of innovation begin with a culture of empathy. She works with leaders to integrate design thinking practices that encourage creativity, recognize accomplishments, build trust, and inspire collective vision. In 2018, the World Economic Forum identified leadership and social influence as a trending skill. Saba shares how building social influence across social media platforms can empower leaders as role models for the beliefs and values they want to see others adopt as they believe that their audience is able to rise to the occasion. As a graduate of the Global Executive EDD program at the University of Southern California, Saba's research focus is how design thinking can prepare individuals with the mindset and skills to thrive in a rapidly changing world. Her work is driven by a quote from William Gibson, the future is here, it just isn't evenly distributed. Saba hosts a podcast, Sprint to Success with Design Thinking, where she interviews researchers and practitioners about their stories and strategies for navigating change with design thinking and thriving in today's world. Remember to check the show notes to find out more about how to contact her. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with Dr. Saba Kidwai. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts, 
at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of DesignCast, and I'm absolutely over the moon to have Dr. Saba Kidwai here with me today. Dr. Kidwai, how are you? Oh, I'm doing so well, thank you. And thank you for having me. I love connecting with fellow designers like yourself. I am absolutely so impressed with the information that you have on your website, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But could you tell everyone who's listening a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Saba, and I recently graduated from the doctoral program at the University of Southern California. So my role in education really for the past few years has been that of a student. I was a former um, high school history teacher, and that's really where I spent most of my time in education. I got into that actually because while I was in college myself, I actually had an internship working with some local high schools, and the local college had a relationship relationship with the local high schools to encourage students and expose them really to the different pathways and opportunities that were available to them. A lot of students when they graduate, especially here in the United States, don't always know the many different options they have for, you know, higher education or the different financial opportunities there are to cover the cost for higher education. And so I just fell in love with that idea of being able to help young people just being able to help young people expose them to different opportunities, help them identify what they're interested in, what they're passionate about, and begin designing that pathway with them. That is such a noble pursuit. And I think that anyone who's been listening to this a while, this podcast, would hear a very similar thread that runs throughout the fabric of this podcast, where people just really love interacting with the young people who are going to be leading tomorrow. So that's fantastic that you got into education like that. What prompted you to then pursue a doctorate? There were a few things in play. One was I had spent so many years, so really sort of like the last decade, you could say, sort of looking at the changing landscape of education with, you know, the different emerging technologies that we see and really the different requirements of the world that we live in today. And there was a part of me that has always sort of held a grudge against sort of my undergraduate education. So I graduated with my master's in 2007. So I graduated, you know, right at the height of the Great Recession. And I remember being a first-year teacher. And it's 2007. And, you know, I read Thomas Friedman's book recently. And so now I just use his line. Like, I remember just constantly saying to myself, like, what the hell is happening? Like, this is not what I was prepared for. This is like, I, I am so clueless about how to go about being successful and making a place for myself in the world today. And so it was sort of really interesting for me to sort of think about going back to school, almost like an experiment. So having, like I said, spent the past decade talking about the things we should be changing in education, talking about strategies. I I was always talking about what we should be doing. And I became really curious about being able to experiment and actually try for myself. Well, what would it be like to go back to school today now that I have a really strong social media platform, now that I have a really good understanding of not just existing technologies, but also emerging technologies? And what would it be like really to just experiment with some of those ideas um, while being able to do some research and tell a story that I was really, really, really excited to tell. So really sort of went back to school with those two purposes in mind. And and honestly, it was 
incredible. Like it was absolutely incredible. I have a follow-up question. That is awesome. There's a part of me, I think a part of every educator who thinks, what would it be like to go back to school? (laughs) (laughs) Knowing what we know now kind of thing. I have a follow-up question. So the research that you did, can you tell me a little bit about it? I'm really interested to hear about, you mentioned social media and how you interact online. And does that part of what your, like your dissertation and whatnot were about? I wish, you know, that would have been a really interesting story as well. And I feel like I more casually tell that story through some of the work that I do. But basically what happened with the research was I had come across about maybe six years ago, a school in San Diego, California called Design 39 Campus. And I had followed their journey And I fell in love with not just the concept of design thinking and how they were using it, but I was in awe of how their teachers, you know, I mean, like I said, I was a teacher myself and I was in awe of the environment that they had created for their teachers to come together to basically reinvent how we do school. And I was just really, really, really eager. I'd always like I knew people that worked there. I had visited there. I had listened to their conference presentations and all that stuff, but I just really, really wanted to spend some time going deep to really being able to uncover what are the practices that they are implementing that that we can learn from to implement in other spaces as well. So that's really what sort of prompted looking into Design 39, telling the story of how we can use design thinking in education. The interest in design thinking really came when I read The Second Machine Age by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee. And they had one line. I mean, the whole book is just, I mean, it's so eye-opening and it's, and you know what I really really appreciate was also so optimistic about how we can begin thinking about the future. And the last line of the book, they say, technology is not destiny. We shape our destiny. And I just felt like that was so powerful. And so really the research and the last couple of years that I've spent doing this is a response to that question. If indeed we can shape our destiny, what are the knowledge, the skills, and the mindsets we need to be able to thrive, not just in workplaces, like I feel like a lot of times we put the emphasis on workplaces, which of course is definitely important, but also in thinking about our role as citizens, which I think, you know, in the last year has emerged. I mean, it's just really opened our eyes as to why we have to start looking at things, not just from a workplace perspective, but really from a human perspective as well. I love it. What a provocation that other educators should follow. And that is great that, you know, a situation or um, an experience like that is, is what prompted you to then go much deeper. What was it about those teachers in those classrooms that was so powerful to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I went in, I so one of the things that they did that I always knew about from sort of, you know, being like an outsider looking in was they had redesigned their school schedule. And one of the core changes that they made was they dedicated one hour each morning for the teachers to be able to come together to collaborate. So I think in a lot of places we see like, you know, the Wednesday PLC day or, you know, the Friday PD at lunch. And we we see a lot of different models for how people are bringing um, teachers together. But there was a real intentionality around collaboration to redesign learning experiences so that they were interdisciplinary. When I went in, I knew collaboration was an important theme and I thought I was going to go in there and, you know, talk more about collaboration. But what really emerged was there's a layer beneath it all. And that layer is of trust 
and vulnerability. I think that it just sort of like brought in, you know, sort of like Brene Brown's work. And the research that I really sort of fell in love with was that of Amy Edmondson, who talks about this idea of psychological safety. One of the ways in which that sort of like her research emerges is Google actually brought her on to try to understand how do you create effective teams that work well together? And they called it Project Aristotle. And in that study, they basically had talked about, you know, they had looked at everything from GPA to, you know, technical proficiency to, you know, skill capacity to EI, like all these different things they had sort of like, you know, tried to look into and narrow down. Is this the reason why this is happening? And when Amy came in, what she ended up saying was great teams that work together, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all really high performing or they're all really technologically proficient. What great teams do well is they have shared norms and values. They understand that every single individual brings something different to the table. And so they work in alignment with people's strengths instead of constantly trying to make people do things that they're just not interested in doing, or you know, they're, maybe they're just not really good at doing. It was such a fascinating concept because I think when we look at collaboration and we look at how to up-level people and we look at how to encourage people to try new practices, we're always trying to get them to do what everybody else is doing. And what I noticed at Design 39, they had a really beautiful question they used to ask when they got together to collaborate. And that is, what are you energized by? It was such a beautiful way of thinking about the work it is we want to do, how we can contribute to the work on teams. And what I loved about that question in particular is it doesn't mean that we don't have to do things we don't like, right? Like, so for me, I am not even remotely energized by numbers. I hate spreadsheets. I hate all that stuff. Like that does not energize me. But if I'm working with somebody and they are energized by, you know, spreadsheets and formulas and all those things that, you know, a spreadsheet can do, then more power to you. And when we come together, we are a force now to be reckoned with. We are able to do more and give more to the people who we are designing for. And so that really, it to me, emerged as just one of the most beautiful parts of the research story was how do we create these cultures of trust versus saying cultures of collaboration, because there's sort of this like hidden element beneath it all. Wow. You are speaking my language. <laughs> that is so amazing. And there's a there's a couple things you hit on that really resonate with me. Number one is that whole idea of assuming best intention when you're talking to your colleagues or your your work friends or and then that whole idea of psychological safety. And I think in so many educational settings, especially, there is a, a tension that does not allow for that to happen, Absolutely. you know, to have that psychological safety. And so and as you're describing this process, I'm listening to I know how IDEO works and I know how design thinking works. And I'm listening to you describe a team from IDEO is <laughs> what it sounds like really? to me that you're getting all these people together and that they have all these different skills and they have all these different interests, but they all have one goal in mind. And so, wow, what an amazing, amazing opportunity you had and to talk with them. Are you still sort of in contact with that school at all? Absolutely. Every day. I mean, so we're working on so many projects right now on basically being able to look at the different ways in which we can tell the story. So I know you asked me about, you know, did I research social media? That was honestly more of like an experiment for myself. So one of the things I wanted to do was, first of all, I thought maybe I'm going to go in and my program's going to help amplify. And, you know, God bless them. Like it, one of the biggest things that came out for me as an educator, as a student, having gone back through that process is I don't really know that I needed my teachers to be giving me the latest and greatest in terms of like emerging things. What I needed them to do was give me the time and space to create in ways that 
that were meaningful to me. And so one of the things I really valued from my professors was how they pushed me to ask better questions because them pushing me to ask better questions allowed me to create content that was obviously going to be of a much higher quality. And so one of the things that I was really excited to do was interview the researchers who I was writing about. It just added like this beautiful element to the story where here's somebody who I'm reading about, who I'm citing in my paper, and now I get to go and interview them and go deeper and share it in that medium as well. Definitely very much in contact with them. Joe Erpelding actually is the principal and we are really good friends. And I always tell people like, if you want to learn about design thinking, you need to talk to Joe because the culture he created in collaboration with, you know, obviously his staff and parents and community, it's truly beautiful. A whole new world is opening up for me. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, for me too. So for, for me that. too when I went that there. Is, <laughs> wow. I am, I'm really, really excited because I think that this could be a game changer and totally transformative for any kind of institution. Is Design 39 Campus, is it a private school or is it a public school or what is their status? I love that question. So like I mentioned earlier, I'd spent a good decade prior to going in and telling the story, working with, you know, not only just K-12, but I also spent three years as director of innovative learning at a physician assistant program over at USC. So as a history teacher, went to a med school, that was, you know, where a lot of my sort of respect for the design thinking process came from. But one of the things that I learned while being there was all the different types of pushback that you get when trying to discuss change, when trying to help people in that change management space. And so when I thought about whose story I was going to tell and I thought about crafting it, I kind of took into account all these different arguments that I'd heard over the past year, you know, few years. One of the biggest ones, anytime we see a promising practice is, you know, oh, like it's private. They must have had money behind them. That's why they were able to do that. So for that reason, I was really intentional. Design 39 Campus is a TK to eight public school in San Diego, California. So they don't get any extra funding or anything, or do they get grants or, because I would imagine there's a specialized training and highly experienced specialized staff that they would need to have. How do they get around sort of doing that? Yes. I mean, they have lots of different ways in which they go about looking at how they're going to like use their funding and whatnot. I don't know that I could speak to the specifics of exactly how they go about doing it. But what I would say is the promising practices that we pulled out from there aren't ones, you know, honestly, if it was, if it required funding, it would probably be easier to do, to be honest. The, the changes that they made and the process that they use to get to where they are is an investment not of money, but of time and of people willing to come together to have those very challenging conversations. The conversations, are, they take time. And it's not just like, oh, we're going to have this conversation, we're going to design this, and then we're done. You could really tell from the conversations I was having with, you know, they call their teachers learning experience designers. And so the conversations I was having with the learning experience designers, you can tell it's a process they're working on. Like they, they say they're living the design thinking process every single day. And so sometimes, you know, I wonder, would it be easier if money could come and solve our problems? <laughs> it definitely helps, right? But really, I think what came out of that is it's more of an investment of our time and our initiative to actually move in this direction. 
that's actually a really great provocation for all schools then. Absolutely, let's, yeah. Let's make these changes. It doesn't require any specialized whatever. I think it requires a certain mindset and open-mindedness of, of the staff. You know, I would assume that people being hired there would sort of know what they're getting themselves into in the recruitment process or whatever. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that hiring was also part of their redesign. How are we going mm. to hire for people here? What questions are we going to ask? Like, who do mm. we want to be part of this community? And so again, I think, you know, for anybody looking to do this, those are all practices that any of us can implement. And not only who do we choose to bring into our community to join us, do we know our own values? And because if we don't know our own values, how can we then, you know, sort of assess, do other people mm-hmm. align with our mission and our goals and the things that is we want to do? And that's not to say that, you know, like, oh, we need special kinds of people. Like, I don't want anyone to think like, oh, we have to hire for certain types of people. I think if you are an established organization, one of the challenges mm-hmm. is building that culture of trust. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of snap your fingers and all of a sudden one day it's going to emerge, especially if there has been tension or there's been like other tension between administrators and teachers mm-hmm. and things like that. And that's why I kind of say like that underlying foundation of trust, vulnerability, mm-hmm. and how you create that culture really forms the foundation for any kind of collaboration or change you want to create moving forward. Absolutely. And I think this is a great time for me to ask you this question that I, I read on your one of your blogs. There's this quote I would like to ask you about. And I think it ties in very nicely with what you've just said. And that is that cultures of innovation, cultures that allow change to, to thrive, begin with a culture of empathy. So can you unpack that a little bit for me? Absolutely. So, you know, I shared with you just a little while ago how my sister was a graduate student at the Keck School of Medicine. She was doing her master's in physician assistant studies. They had asked the students to bring a device, you know, go one to one. And at that time, I was at a K-12 doing the same thing. And it was just really fascinating to kind of watch her go through this process and, you know, just how many things like she wasn't as exposed to. And long story short, we ended up working on a lot of projects together. And the director of that program, I mean, he was just a visionary. I mean, somebody so beyond his time. But he said one of the most profound things to me once. He said, if I'm going to have our more students come to this program, like if I'm going to be able to get students interested in coming to this program, I have to make sure our program is relevant. And so he actually created a new role, Director of Innovative Learning. And I got to go join, you know, this physician assistant family medicine program. And it was a huge change in environment for me. I mean, I was completely, I mean, I, t- I always tell people I took geology as a science because I hated science that much. Like science just was not my thing. And so to then go from, you know, sort of the social sciences, teaching history and psychology to now being a part of a med school was definitely me being out of my comfort zone. But I was really, really excited to bring some of those K-12 practices into the higher education space. And so really for the first six months, I was just observing. I was observing and I was listening and I was just really building relationships. And a lot of what happened over the course of those three years, I was there for three years, was so organic and I didn't really know what I was doing in the moment. They were just sort of like, you know, it was like, okay, well, I don't really have a choice other than to listen because I have no idea what we're going to do or where we're going to start or how we begin. And so that's really where this quote comes from or this this understanding comes from was that innovation begins with empathy. It begins with understanding what are people's needs, what are people's challenges, their fears, but also what are their motivations? And I think that the motivation piece is often one that we don't pay enough attention to when we talk about empathy mapping. We sort of always focus on the problems, like what are people's needs? What are their challenges? Like what what's, what are their fears? Which are definitely important, obviously, to take into account. But I think we also have to account for the 
opposite end of the spectrum. What are people excited about? What do people want to do? Like what gets people excited to get up and come to work in the morning? And when you begin to unpack what those elements are for different individuals, you can then design how you're going to approach change using their language. I think it allows for a more customized approach to change. It allows for a more inclusive approach to change. There's a really great consultant at SYP. Her name is Brie Goff. And I hope I don't get this wrong, but she says people don't resist change. People resist loss. And if you can understand what people feel they are losing, whether it's a loss of narrative of what used to be, whether it's a loss of time, loss of whatever it might be for them, if you can understand that, you can begin to be more empathetic and begin to move down that pathway of transformation with people instead of being ahead of people expecting them to follow. So that's kind of really where that understanding or where that line came from. It was three years of having to go through that process sort of, you know, without a choice is really what that revelation was. What a great story. And I like the second quote as well, because I've never kind of seen it from that angle of the loss part. And I think that's really, really relevant, especially in educational organizations, because there are people who grow and they yearn for the days of the early days of how things were. And I think that educational organizations do move very slowly, but the change can sometimes be quite profound. And over time, when you look at the amount of change that happens, it's almost unrecognizable from the start to the end. And so I think a lot of people worry that that's what happens because I've heard so many times and I work with a lot of schools as well. And so many times have I heard teachers say, oh, this is just another phase or this is just another initiative and it will go away and this other thing will come back. And in many cases, they're not being untrue, (laughs) just that whatever the administration is at that time or whatever, they keep bringing in different kinds of things. And so I think for true systematic change to happen, we do have to change our our way of thinking. And so, wow, that's so inspirational. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm really on to this whole empathy thing at the moment, and I hope it never goes away because I feel it's so important in education, but also just in life as being a human being, (laughs) just considering motivations. And so we've talked a lot about sort of the specifics of your work. And by the way, I took geology too, for the same reason. So we're, uh, we're in the same boat. <laughs> we love rocks. So, um, but let me ask you, what do you think, just if, if you could just wave a magic wand and make design thinking happen in schools, what would your vision be for that? Wow. I think it would be twofold, you know, and I think it's one of the story, it's the story I try to tell in the research is it's twofold. It's one, what are we doing for today's learners, right? How are we giving them those knowledge, those skills, those mindsets? You know, I always say we know why we need to change, right? We get it. The World Economic Forum has drilled it within us. Like, you know, we hear the skills of the future. You know, we read books like, you know, Eric Brynjolfsson's and Andrew McAfee's Second Machine Age. So we get why. Like, we understand the world is changing. I think we also know what. I think we also know, you know, assessment needs to change. I think we know that our grading system is not equitable. I think we know competency-based learning and design thinking and project-based practices are way more advantageous for learners. I think where we really, really, really struggle is how. We get the why. We even know what it is we need to do. We are lost when it comes to how do I take that step from going from those traditional practices? You know, it's like one of the pieces of, it's a really big part of the research that I highlight in there is Taya Kintobin's The Grand 
grammar of school. They, they do like a study over the past century saying like, look, none of what we're talking about today is new. People have been engaging in education reform to change and redesign these practices for the past hundred years. So why have we not been successful? And basically what they bring it down to is they say there is a grammar in schools the same way we have, you know, grammar in English. And what that is, is these really embedded practices like our grading system and how we divide students into, you know, age level grades, how we silo content. And until we don't challenge those foundational practices, it will always feel like one more thing. And kind of looking at that, one of the things is, okay, well, you know, how do we use design thinking to challenge these traditional practices? Because we know these are challenging conversations. These are uncomfortable conversations, but design thinking gives us that step-by-step-by-step framework. So if we're going to have a meeting and we're going to convene a group to talk about how we might redesign our schedule, we don't have to sit there in the beginning at a loss of, oh my God, okay, where do we even begin? Or even worse, go down a rabbit hole of people's opinions that then ultimately lead to no action because we just spent the whole hour just discussing things. So that's one of my big visions is that we're able to sort of use the frameworks that are evidence-based. People have been using these. They get us results. They are used in industries across the globe by organizations that are looking to change their systems and their practices or design new products. So how do we use these frameworks to have those conversations so that they are manageable and they are actionable and we can begin to actually feel the results of our work? So that's really one side of it, using it to be able to challenge that traditional grammar of school and design what works for you. And that's a really important part of the research as well is that we're not here to say everyone should be doing what Design 39 did. Design 39 did what they did because that was what their needs were. The needs of their community, the needs of their students, their parents, their educators, their leaders, you name it. It was them understanding their needs and designing something in response to that. But what I do hope people take away from the research are the practices that they used to actually create what they did. And so really coming together with your community to say, okay, like starting with that empathy piece, what do our learners need? And that answer is going to look different for each and every single school. And there's a real beauty in that flexibility and getting to design something that's going to work for your community and for your students. So that's sort of one angle of it. The other angle of it is how are we preparing our kids, not just using these design thinking practices to change our organizations, but also to be able to give our students those design thinking practices right from the beginning so that they don't have to grow up and unlearn all this stuff and then go back and relearn. And it's been fascinating. I've been spending a lot of time lately in a clubhouse and it's just fascinating to me to listen to how many adults struggle with mindset. And really the mindset struggle really is confidence. People don't think they're good enough in anything. You know, you just at some point have to wonder how much of that has to do with our grading system. You know, if you've spent your entire life being told, you know, you're a number, you're not good at this, you're not good at that, you're only good at this, you're only good at that. And that's what's kind of being drilled into you. And we know that our grading system doesn't take into account emotional intelligence. It doesn't take into account our creativity, doesn't take into account all of those human sort of skills and elements that are a part of us. I think it's the number one struggle adults have is mindset. And you just have to wonder if from a young age, 
age, we instill within our children, you can create anything. You can solve any problem that you see. What would a society like that look like where every single person had that type of creative confidence? And so that's mm. really sort of like the two different angles. One is changing mm-hmm. systems and the other is preparing learners. I was going to ask you about Clubhouse, but we'll get to that in a second. Definitely. <laughs> because definitely. I'm, I'm really interested about that. I'm actually reading a book by Todd Rose, um, who's a graduate professor at, at, at Harvard in the Graduate School of Education called Dark Horse. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not, but oh, it I is haven't. really I fantastic. I think it's latest book and it's all about that mindset piece. So as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking that's exactly what I've been reading. And one of the things he talks about is the standardization of industry and then the standardization of education um, and how what it, what it's done <laughs> to all of us that if you do this, then this will happen. And if you do this and this will happen, then, then you'll eventually find success. And he said, finding success is not necessarily what the goal should be. It should be finding fulfillment. And it's a really fantastic book. And so I hope you have a chance to take a look at that sometime. I just Um, wrote it down. Did you see The Dark Horse? The Dark Horse. Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote it down. I think it's just Dark Horse, actually. Uh, But it's great. Yeah. It's a a follow-up to The End of Average, which he wrote. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. yeah, It's really, really great. His research, his TED Talk and stuff has been fantastic. And it goes right along with what you're saying is that why do we have all these multiple intelligences and these various emotional intelligences, and then we grade everyone the same way. <laughs> right. <laughs> so and, and you know, you you highlight it right there. Those things aren't new, right? Like Howard Gardner, like that is that work is what? Like decades old. So Ty can Tobin highlight that so well. Like none of this is new. So why have we not gotten here yet? Why are we still where we are? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I th- you know what? I think it goes back to what you said earlier, which is the loss piece is that people are afraid of what they've lost. Well, we will lose if we make changes in the system. And change is hard. I will say, though, that with our current global situation, now is the time to make change. <laughs> you know, Now is the time to do it. Tell me a little bit about what you've been doing with Clubhouse, because I am on the waiting list, but <laughs> I'm trying to get in. But tell oh me a little God, bit about will, what all you've been doing. I will send you an invite as soon as this is over. Oh, that will be yeah, great. Thank you so much. You in there. Absolutely. And you know, okay, it's interesting great. to say that. That's a really great way to start start a conversation about Clubhouse. One of the most fascinating things about it, especially, you know, your listeners will find this fascinating, you'll find this fascinating, is the design of the experience. So one of the reasons you have to have like a friend invite you is like there's this like social trust element built in. So it's not like, oh, I can just email you an invite. I have to actually have your phone number in my contact list for it to prompt me and say, you know, hey, this person joined. Do you want to let them in? And you get that choice. And and it's just a fascinating, I think, experiment in social trust. And then your names are tied together. For example, like the person who invited me, Brian Fanzo, like his name now is forever tagged to the bottom of my profile. Mm. So it's almost like this like social like responsibility of like, okay, who are we letting mm. in and what am I going to be responsible for? The other really interesting design element in there is diversity. So Clubhouse is basically an audio only social experience. You can think of it as like, you know, when you go to college and you, it's, you know, club day and you go and you sign up for all these different clubs and your clubs host different events. It's that, but virtual or all in an app. And so you can, you know, follow people. And, you know, for example, like you might be in a chat and I can kind of go into the room that you're in. And it's almost like this like never ending conference where you are just having these incredible conversations. You can join a conversation or you can start your own. And it's just been a really fascinating place to hear, especially from an empathy perspective, just hear people's stories, their experiences, and listen to people talk through what they think think 
possible solutions can be or share ideas about different topics. Elon Musk was on the other day and there was somebody interviewing him and just, just the accessibility to these like incredible individuals that were like, that we read, you know, we read their tweets all day long to be able to actually hear from them has been really fascinating. But also just, I have been exposed to so many different people. Like I just didn't even know existed. So many educators, so many designers, just so many people across all different industries. And it's just this really great inclusive space to bring people together to have these conversations, especially at a time where we are so sorely missing that element of, you know, human life. We haven't been to a conference in the past year face to face. And and it's so different. Like someone might say like, well, you know, we're on Zoom chats or we're on this and we're on that. But I think this is really where design comes in, the way in which they've designed the inclusivity of the experience to allow for everyone to have a voice, for allow choice really as well in what sessions you come in and out of, how you connect with people has been really interesting. Another really interesting design element of Clubhouse is it's not here to compete. It's a complement in so many ways to so many of the other platforms we have. So for example, like there's no messaging built in Clubhouse. You have to have like a link out to your Twitter or your Instagram or your LinkedIn profile for people to Uh, go and connect with you. So there's just a lot of really interesting design elements, but it's just mm -hmm. right now a fascinating place to come together and have conversations. I think it was you who shared out the LinkedIn Hello Monday podcast where they were talking to the founder of um, Clubhouse. And I was listening to that and it's so fascinating to hear the words he was using. Just the word choice he had in the conversation were really, really deliberate and just really positive. I just found it. I'm stoked to get part of it. Of course, audio is something I really enjoy too. I think it's such a lost art form. I'm glad to hear that there's it's not dying out. That discourse is so incredibly important. And I think without the video, actually, it probably even makes it more meaningful to me because you have to tell a story. Like you said, I love storytelling and I love listening to stories. And I think that's something that we have to continue to preserve and enhance as we move forward as a human race, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And, you know, I think from an empathy lens, like just that practice of listening and the art of listening, I think everyone's art of listening has improved tenfold just from Mm. being on the app. So yeah, I'm excited to have you in there and chat with you in there and hear from you as well. That sounds so exciting. It sounds like something I've been missing, something I didn't even know I needed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This has been so great. Let me ask you a couple of just quick kind of quick fire questions. And and that is, we've talked a lot about different books. What would be the number one book you would ask everyone to read right now? The number one book, honestly, I'm going to have to say, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I would really, really encourage people to read The Second Machine Age. I think, you know, the authors wrote it in 2014 and you think we would have learned you know, and applied what they said by now, and we haven't. And I think it's a great contextualization of the history from the first industrial revolution to where we are now. But like I said, more so to what we can do moving forward to design the types of societies we want to live in. So absolutely love the second machine age. Fantastic. I know you have a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I do. Yeah. My podcast is really an extension of the research that I did with design thinking. It gave me an opportunity to, so basically on the podcast, I, you know, interview researchers and practitioners. So I like to create a bit of a balance. So I, you know, pull people from the research, people who I've been citing, but then I also go to industry and actually look at people who are using design thinking in, you know, the industry space and ask them, you know, how, how is this relevant to the work that you're doing? 
How is this relevant? What skills do you hope students learn from engaging in these practices? And so that's the podcast stories about researchers and practitioners using design thinking. Well, it is super high quality and I would encourage anyone to get out there and listen to it. I really have enjoyed what I've heard. So thank you so much for, I know that content creation we were talking earlier is not easy, um, especially to make it quality content creation. (laughs) Thank you for being so deliberate with the way you've created that. I appreciate that. You're right. It is not easy. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing is if people want to get in touch with you or just reach out to find out more about the work you've been doing, can, how can they do that? What's the best way? Absolutely. I feel like the best way is just go to my website. It's www.askmissq, so A-S-K-M-S-Q.com. And you'll get linked to like my different social channels and, you know, kind of highlights from the podcast and the blog and everything all in one place. I highly recommend everyone checking that out because there's so much great content there. So thank you so much. Listen, this has been great. I hope that we can do this again sometime. Hopefully we can continue the conversation over at Clubhouse some point in the near future. But this has been so great. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode of DesignCast. I'm Jason, your host, and I produced and created this podcast. If you have any input, I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to seeing you again really soon. I am so excited to announce the launch of a new podcast network called DNA Podcast Network. The Design Network Alliance, or DNA, was founded by Evo Hanan and myself as a result of DesignCast number 16. We talked all about the need to connect design educators globally. DNA is a collective group of like-minded design educators from around the world. We have one simple mission, to connect design and STEAM educators with each other and with designers that want to make a difference in design education to make it better for future generations. The DNA Podcast Network is a hub for podcasts that cover the topics around design, design and technology, design thinking, STEAM, and STEM education. If you are interested in hearing more great content, head over to www.dnapodcastnetwork.ga today. Click on the thumbnail of the podcast that you want to hear and enjoy. If you have any other podcasts that you enjoy that cover similar topics, please feel free to get in touch with me and let me know so that I can look at adding them to the network. Finally, spread the word. Share with your network and your PLN and use the hashtag DNA Podcast Network. Thank you.